You know, I'm always just a little bit nervous when you all ask me to cover one of the greats like this. I mean, I have no idea what I could possibly add to the conversation that hasn't been said by a billion other people already, but this is your request, and I am, as ever, your dancing monkey. So, Princess Mononoke, the second best-selling animated film of all time, and considered the greatest of all traditionally animated films of all time, both critically and financially. This one actually, I, if you've been paying attention to my videos that have been coming live this year, that I recorded last year, I know this one's out of order, but I kind of had a scheduling snafu, so this one kind of gets slotted in. Even though all the other videos I'm recording for the next coming weeks are coming out next year, I'm going to get off topic. All of the videos that have been coming out this year, as you are watching this, have been, I, I remember this, I made a point of discussing and analyzing the financial side of things as well, especially as it's relevant for certain individual films. I had trouble doing that with this one, because finding concrete figures was something that was more difficult than it should be, because some of the figures didn't specify which release and which markets, because there's obviously the Japanese release, which is in 97, but then there's the you know United States and worldwide releases, which were in 99, and I had some figures for some, but they implied that the others were involved, but they couldn't be because the figures for the other don't actually outweigh the former figures, which means I have no idea how all this film sold. I mean, I know it had a $23.5 million budget, and it made somewhere from 170 to 380 something million dollars, depending on exactly how you track that. Again, uh, it certainly did very well. That's all I'm going to say to that part. It's actually interesting too because apparently it was Miyazaki's last film. Miyazaki, excuse me, Miyazaki's last film. This is a joke. I'm sure some of you get one he was working on, arguably from the 70s, but they were actually storyboarding this for a good three years, or rather three years in advance. I'm sorry, I'm saying that wrong. They, they let me be more clear about my communication. They started storyboarding this three years before it actually came out, which is pretty impressive and a hell of a cycle, especially for an animated work. But then again, I guess that's just Ghibli for you, right? Um, Miramax. This So this is funny. It's a long film, right? I'm, uh, this, did I already say that? Sorry, this is actually my second take because there was a big crash and we got interrupted and I had to go check the door. And I decided to just do a second take here. So forgive me. Don't remember if I've already mentioned this already. So if this does, I'm just going to look like an idiot. This is also the last film which was done in the traditional cell animation style that they were using back in the day. This is actually something I already talked about in the Disney Renaissance stuff, if you happen to have watched those videos as well, where I discussed how they were starting to use more digital and computer usage for animation, even even traditional animation, still using computers to help assist, rather than the more traditional and classic approach of actually just trying everything like they used to do. Now, there was still about... Uh, eight or nine percent of the film which was you know, computer generated the most obvious thing being the demon tentacle things it's pretty obvious in several scenes but ignoring that after this they would go ahead and move forward to a completely new model just like disney did and of course disney is appropriate to talk about in this case since disney and ghibli i'm a little amazed they had anything to do with each other after the troubles they had prior to this film with messing with the ghibli films which is something I'm only distantly familiar with, but I have a friend of mine who is very into Ghibli, and of course, 
I did a little background research for this very review. Or, this is not a review. This is very room for this room. Sorry. These are not reviews. <laughs> There's no score here. This is not a review. Um, but it's funny I mentioned Disney here. Since, thanks to some interference by uh, Harvey and Bob Weinstein. God, I can't talk tonight. They wanted to chop about 20 minutes from this film. Now, real quick. I assume if you're watching this far into me, meandering and stumbling over my words, it's the first video I've recorded this cycle, and I'm already, I'm just tired, I apologize. You may or may not have seen this film. If you have, I want you to picture 20 minutes just axed out of it. Probably not in one chunk. There's a few bits of what could otherwise be considered unessential bits, but I want you to picture that, because while I can picture it, I do think the film would suffer for it. As I will discuss in more detail later, the pacing of this film is actually excellent, and chopping up will naturally interfere with and interrupt that pacing. Now, what's funny is they probably would have gotten away with it if not for the fact that Miramax, which had the distribution rights, is a Disney company. And Disney and Ghibli, by this point in history, actually had a contract saying, no, no, you don't get to chop it up or screw with it anymore. So they didn't. <laughs> this is especially important, though. This is a long and This is not a short film. And it was considered unusual, uh, especially at the time. Nowadays, films of this length are semi-more regular. I, I've personally held the theory for some time that the Lord of the Rings trilogy kind of popularized, or at least made it more acceptable for the money people to accept pushing out films of this length, for good and for bad. But nevertheless, this was you know, somewhat, considered somewhat unusual for its time. Let's jump into the film itself. So, it's Fern Gully. All right, we're done. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I, <laughs> Ashitaka. All right, so I'm going to screw up all the names in this one. I've got, I've got guides. I've got notes. I've got two pages of notes. We're going to see how well I do here. So if I look down a lot, it's because I want to make sure I don't screw up all the names. Because, again, beloved classic. Ashitaka on Deerback, immediately rushing to, and uh, there's this demon attacking. And the demon rushes in. And, you know... I do like that the first thing we see in this film is arguably one of the main themes of the film. And I'm going to be building up to this point, so please forgive me. Ashitaka and Yakul are both effectively working together. They're, 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 there's clearly a partnership there. He cares about Yakul, Yakul cares back, and the two are trying to interact with each other. There's, there's a, a merger there. This is then shown in immediate contrast to the demon, I don't remember his name, he's voiced by John DiMaggio, who charges forward and deliberately attacks both the tower, the man-made device, and the deer elk, or whatever it's actually supposed to be. I like how the film just starts with that. It's, And I'm going to go ahead and pause for a moment to gush about how many little moments there are like that. I'm not going to point them all out, that's more something like a lore run territory. But there are a lot of individual moments where they just bother to show something that is beautifully presented like that. I just wanted to comment on it very quickly. Ashitaka does everything in his power to uh, placate the demon, as does the wise woman, actually. Pleads with it, please don't attack us, we have no quarrel. Please, we will bury you and venerate you. Please do not hate us. Please, please, we're, we're working with you. We don't hate you, we don't hate you. We're not against you. The demon says... Piss off, curses, curses Ashitaka, and then rots away. That's um, interesting. 
As we later find out, the curse is effectively a curse of hatred, so that makes a degree of sense. But it does help to showcase kind of the problem that they're up against. Naturally, this leads to them being like, okay, well, your arm is cursed. Random thought. Why don't they just chop off his arm? I, I, I hate to say that. I was actually waiting for them to address that at some point in the film, but they never do. There's some ancillary work where they explain that. Why don't they just chop the arm off? There you go. Like they, even, they talk about it like it's a disease and it'll spread and it has a physical presence. So I guess it was his right arm now that I'm thinking about it. So sorry, right arm. Anyways, they decide not to chop him off. Instead, they decide to kick him out of the tribe for saving them all because apparently this is Secret of Mana. Who knew? <clears throat> so, Yakul goes with. Why? I always like to ask questions during these videos, and it's because I like reading your answers and because I want to provoke you all to think as well. Why did Yakul go with him? Now, you might think, well, that's a dumb question, Lore. Of course he did. He's his friend, but hang on. Yakul is effectively a member of the tribe and village as well, by all accounts and reasoning. And again, they've got the whole, you know, men and nature together combined thing going on, right? So that would mean that Yakul, if he goes with him, actually, I don't know if Yakul's a guy or a girl. I don't think I ever say it, but anyways, if Yakul goes with him, as in Ashitaka, then that means Yakul is equally banished, just like Ashitaka. So, why did he go with? Did he decide to share in that banishment? Did he decide, screw it? Is it because of pragmatism? Because they clearly don't actually hate him, and they don't want any harm to befall him. So did they kind of let this one slide because they wanted him to have some means of dealing with whatever future was going to help uh, uh, go through, that he was going to go through in the future? Was this a gift? Is it that Yakul has shared blame? This is the idea that caught my, my thoughts most interestingly. I can't talk tonight. My sentence structure is all over the place. This is the thought that most interested me. What if Yakul, by virtue of being the mount that he was on when he shot the boar and killed it, thereby leading to the curse and leading to the needing to be banished thing, takes equal blame in the action? How's that for a fun thought? And thus Yakul really is banished just like him. It could also be, if you want to be a slightly more positive take on things, that Yakul's bond with him was so strong that even if they tried to command Yakul to stay, Yakul wouldn't. Food for thought. So, cursed and strong. It's a shame that... Well, I mean... this They'd have an interesting way of showing it with him taking out the samurai bandits. Sorry for being redundant. But what I find most interesting is that this would actually have added other extra strength to the idea I mentioned earlier. Chopping it off. You have superpowers now, congrats. Or you could chop off the arm and, and live, but you'd lose all your strength and powers. Just just another thought, another little reason they could have gone with that nugget. I don't, I don't blame them for it, it's just something to think about. So then, Jigo <laughs> smoothly and effortlessly inserts himself into Ashitaka's good graces. By using the truth, too. I have a note here that I took at the time that I want to point your attention to. I know you can't actually read this, all my notes, but uh, it just says, Smart Villain? Question mark. Now, I think I've seen this film before, but I have no particular memory of it, obviously. Um, and I didn't remember that he is the main villain of the film. And I just wanted to point that out, because even from his very first scene, I was like, 
that's the villain right there. That's the main villain. And you might wonder why. Well, there's actually two big reasons. I'm going to save the other reason for later. I could point out how he was obviously looking for Ashitaka. Ah, there he is, finally. I could point how he goes so far out of his way to be so affable, friendly, ingratiating himself. And again, he bothers to tell the truth for the most part. In fact, he tells an overwhelming amount of truth, but not all the truth. It's one of the most effective ways of lying, by the way. It's when you tell 90% the truth and then 10% the lie, but you're strategic with the lie. No, I've never seen an iron ball like this before. And yet I'm pretty sure everything else he said during the course of that conversation was, in fact, the truth. He even mentions the fact that there's the, the bounty on the Forest King's head, or the Forest Lord's head, or whatever. He smoothly and effortlessly sneaks in there. And it's just nice and friendly and helpful. And he's also voiced by Billy Bob Thornton while we're on the subject. He's also smart. We'll talk more about that in the future. He has a comment, the whole world is cursed, which is something he mentions later. He's a bit of a cynic. <sighs> Makes me think of The Witcher, actually, if you think about it. There's so many areas where people have died en masse or died in horrible ways that it's a wonder the entire planet isn't completely cursed, right? Especially in a setting where, you know, demons and the like exist. Can I just mention, let's pause for a moment, and talk about how the camera work, I know that's the wrong word for an animated film, but it, it applies in the same way. The camera work is brilliant here. What they do, this I want to focus on, I wish I could just sit and talk about this one scene and just show you it back here, but obviously I don't have the green screen anymore. Yes, these, these things are actually here. I don't know if you're aware of that. You know, I can reach out and touch them. <clears throat> I can grab a drink, an energy drink. Mega Man! One of the things that I, I love is good usage of camera. And it's harder to use the camera properly than it sounds because you want the camera to always be working in service of the narrative. This is something that is one of the reasons I'm such a huge fan of Kurosawa and something I've talked about before. Uh, for those of you not aware, I often consider Kurosawa to be my favorite film director and filmmaker of all time. And that's a, an opinion I still hold to this day. He's, uh, he used the camera. It's one of the biggest things he did. It was no longer theatrical. It was trying to move cinema in a new direction. This is something I've talked about before. What they do in this scene is the camera switches around to keep the tempo going visually, but also each time it moves, it keeps in mind two big things. One, what they want you to be focusing on. There's a great power in showing a specific thing or not showing a thing on camera. What we show and what we don't show changes how the viewer interprets and perceives whatever's happening within the course of the visual work. This is true in uh, television. This is true in movies. This is true in video games. And so I absolutely adore when they use it to good effect in this. But there's a second thing, too. This is the thing that is talked about a lot less. Even I haven't talked about this much, although I gush about it internally at least, whenever I see it, it's how you use the camera to change the dynamic. Some, you've seen the, sho the typical shoulder shot, right? But another shot they'll do is the kind of up-back shot, which tries to show the two, uh, because of the way that the angles are working out, like this, I know this is a terrible visual presentation, you see that they are equal. Or you could zoom the camera in, that makes it more personal. Or you could zoom the camera out, that makes it more distant, more uh, 
clinical almost. You can try to have the camera looking up at someone, which usually in indicates more of an antagonistic vibe, or maybe looking down on someone, which can showcase someone as being in a moment of, uh, of emotional strength or emotional uh, impact, or and so forth and so on. There's so many ways you can use the camera to try and change the dynamic of what is happening on the screen in such subtle, quiet little ways that most people don't ever talk about. This scene where Jigo and Ashitaka are sitting and having the soup does all of this, and it does it beautifully. Every single tidbit naturally follows not only, again, the focus thing that I mentioned, but the dynamic thing. Had to pause and gush about that. So, we see, the next scene we jump into is Iboshi. And she's, well, there's wolves attacking and, and San is there. We don't know her yet, though. There's wolves attacking. They have guns. The, the, the framing and showcasing of this scene does a lot in very efficient short period of time, in addition to just being an action piece. Earlier, we saw the samurai bandits, sorry for being redundant, who were literally just chopping people down and trying to take all their stuff as they fled. They also tried to attack and kill Ashitaka for the crime of, of being there and them not recognizing him. I know they probably assumed he was part of the village, but the point remains... By contrast, what we get from Iboshi and her group is just simple pragmatism. And one of the things they mention very quickly on is that they're trying to get rice back to their town, to their village. So this is not some kind... It, it, it just does an immediate job of distinguishing them and does something that I've heard many people talk about when it comes to this film. Graying things. There's a couple of legitimately good people... I might walk, I might talk that down to one legitimately good person. And then there's a few legitimately evil people. And then there's everyone in between. The film goes out of its way very heavily to try and slant, excuse me, to not slant things so that people can just be who they are and you can make your own judgments. As ever, curious of your thoughts. Aboshi does what uh, she can. Gonza is almost immediately more negatively portrayed. And yet this, even this is done in a manner that makes perfect sense. This is, he's portrayed as the typical kind of obstruction of bureau, obstructionist bureaucrat, which is an archetype I talk about a lot. He is immediately contrasted by, um, please tell me I wrote down her name, Tika? Tika? I didn't write down her name. Starts with a T. She is shown to be the helpful bureaucrat, the assistant, the, the one who's actually helpful and wants to try and take her. I didn't write down her name. She's actually a major character. I didn't even write down her name. Whatever. We, so we see both sides of the archetypes in one of the initial scenes. This is actually about, about the third or so scene at this point when it comes to Irontown and the people who live there. I also want to point out one other thing, and this is brilliant in my opinion. Irontown is shown reasonably in general, but the first thing that caught my attention is that when they find out that Kuroku is back, they recognize the name and the person by sight. Just immediately. Now, why is that so relevant? I mean, you could argue this is a small town and everyone should know everyone. But what it really does is show that they not only know who each person is, but they care. Everyone rushes to the, to the front in order to help Kuroku when he's being held up by Ashitaka and brought in. Because not only do they know who it is, that's their friend, that's their neighbor. That's someone who matters to them. There's a camaraderie that is shown just immediately and effortlessly. And it's just slid under the rug. It is the kind of thing you would expect from the good guy's village. 
And indeed, Kuroku is arguably one of the more light gray of the grays within this particular work, mostly because he's comic relief, but the fact remains. Contrast, then, the upcoming scene, which helps to show a nice little bit of uh, tidbitting going on. Because it does the whiplash thing, but on purpose. Everyone's laughing and dancing and singing, and then we see cutscenes of horrible death and battle and doom, and then, <laughs> and then burning forest. And it just jumps back and forth between the two. And the whole time, Ashitaka's getting angry, which, of course, as we've already discovered, makes the curse worse, which makes sense. It's literally hatred. Then, not only does he keep it under control, but you'll notice the people express concern from you. Okay, dude? Is that all right? We find out that Eboshi just showed up with the Mercs, which is a fascinating thought. The town already had the wealth. They mention in passing that there was iron under the town in the sand, they flat out say. And that, of course, there's veins nearby, which they've only started to excavate relatively recently. But Iboshi showed up, had the warrior monks with the guns, thanks, Jigo, and just kind of started taking over by sheer virtue of being competent enough. And that actually makes perfect sense. That is a very common thing historically, not just in Japan, but in everywhere. <laughs> so... That makes perfect sense, and it helps to establish her as well. This leads to her discussing what's going on and showcasing the lepers. This is also when we flesh her out a little bit more as a character, because she's obviously not exactly a good person, but she specifically has been reaching out and buying out bro uh, brothels contracts for women, as well as taking in lepers, which may actually not be a good idea long-term, but let's not, let's not think about that for the moment. Just because her big thing is, well, people, actually. See, she is very person-focused. She cares a lot about people, and while she doesn't want to fight other people, she will if she has to, the main thing she is focused on is trying to be to ensure the prosperity and happiness of those who are under her care and anyone else who wants to be a part of that care as much as they, do, as much as they seek. She jokes about conquering the world, but it's very clear that that's not even close to her motivations. She is people-focused. I hate to keep reiterating that point, but I mention that because considering one of the most common things that's usually put upon this film is man versus nature, she's on the man side. No pun intended. She is very pro-human because that is where her focus is. I, I hate... I keep bouncing around that. There's also a good time to mention a couple things. First of all, why is everyone so thirsty for Ashitaka? My goodness. Second of all... Lots of people doing the tech of individuals. They show the wall. They actually show all the people who have to work to get the wall working. They also show all the women who all work in the billows and how much of them there are and how much work that takes. Side note, it also makes sense that the women use their legs to do that since, generally speaking, biologically, in, you know, from what I understand, maybe I'm completely wrong about this, women have stronger slash more, more endurance in, more stamina in their legs than men do. So it makes sense that they would use their legs in order to do this lengthy, difficult work. Ashitaka actually flat out mentions that he, he's, he's breaking up a sweat with only doing this for seconds. So this is about the time we find out that Abashi and San actually have the same uh, strategy. Both of them find the other to be an opponent. San is obviously pro-nature. Eboshi is pro-human. Okay, cool. And both of them seem, seem to think that the best possible solution is to defeat the enemy commander. 
and ironically both could be argued to be right, depending on how you look at that. If the actual gods of the forest were removed, then the, the it would just be a normal forest, and they could just do what they want with it, and the problem is gone. If a Boshi is removed, well, you remember what I mentioned earlier about her showing up and taking charge? Well, that's not just because of the fact that she carried some guns with her. She had competence, organization, and charisma. Remove that kind of leader from the equation, the rest is just going to sit there. Uh, a Toki! I did write to her name. Toki. Um, Toki <laughs> might actually be able to manage something of this, and uh, ar arguably Gonza might be able to do something too, even though he's an idiot. But you get my point. So both have the same plan, but the problem here is both plans suck. Now I want you to imagine for just a second that you decide to go and kill the, the charismatic, brilliant leader of a particular faction. Do you walk home and win? Or have you just created a banner for much more violent and bloodthirsty conflict than you had previously? This is a good time as any to talk about what I consider to be the second main theme of this work, the cycle of violence slash cycle of revenge. And I want to talk about it here. It's it's so overt that I don't feel the need to really discuss much of it. You know, it, it, it obviously showcases it very nicely. With one exception, because this is brilliant. One of the things I discovered... Uh, forgive me for sidebarring here for just a second. Back in the day, I used to believe very strongly in show, don't tell, right? It was, it was a mantra. It's, it's one of the things I was taught back in high school, for God's sakes, when it comes to writing and to cinematography, because I actually did go to school for television productions. I've talked about that before. But the thing is, as I've gotten older and I've started analyzing more and more and more and more fiction, I've started disagreeing with that. And this really came in in MLP, of all things, and the streaminations we've been doing over there every Sunday. Because one of the things that MLP will do is will show, then tell, and I've slowly warmed up to that approach. You show, and that's the that's the nuance moment. That's the nice thing for the people who are paying attention, and that's the the good cinematography, good writing. But then you tell to make it nice and clear for anybody who either missed the earlier point, or for the kids, or for the people who are just hanging out, or just to really re-emphasize a specific point. You know, you want to hammer that point in. And while hammering it in too much and too hard is a bad thing in most cases, sometimes you do want to hammer it in more than once to make this point very clearly. Cycles of revenge, right? Now, later on, when uh, when San is charging into the city, and is running on the rooftops, and Aboshi has her women there, they tell. Revenge. You want revenge, they want revenge. Yeah, you killed my husbands, you bad. Right? You remember that? That's the telling. But did you catch that before this, they actually showed this? What they have, this is, I'm sorry for gushing. This is great writing. What happens is Ashitaka approaches Eboshi and she says, your arm wants to kill me. And he says, if it would fix this, I would kill you without hesitation. But it's not. So I'm going to leave. Did you catch it? Revenge doesn't even occur to him. At no point does he consider ki killing her because she is the cause of his woes to be sufficient motivation. Revenge isn't even on his mind. So the cycle of violence and the cycle of revenge is something he's not even a part of. He's over there at McDonald's just chilling and having a, a, a shamrock shake. 
Maybe some chicken nuggets. I hear they got these new spicy ones. I haven't tried them yet. He doesn't care. And I love how they show that. Because what they do is they show someone outside of that cycle, and then they tell with the two people who are, well, the two groups of people who are both in the cycle and are both just circling around each other. And what happens immediately after that is Ashitaka gets in the way and prevents both sides from killing each other. Brilliant stuff. Sorry, I just I had to gush about that one. <laughs> so this is when we start to talk about pacing a little bit. So first they show, you know, the, the village that's both sides. Then they do some work establishing the human side of stuff. Then they keep going a little bit, and then they do some work to establish the the natural side of stuff, which is mostly on the demon thing. We see the apes, we see the wolves, um, we see the... Uh, Oh my god, I didn't write down the the, the, the Namago, the Nago. Little, little creepy things. I forget what they're called. <clears throat> Every comment on this YouTube video is just going to be people telling me what they are. And <laughs> they they do this to showcase, you know, look over there. Now look over here. And then it's going to go back into the middle and showcase the two interacting in a non-peaceful manner. So we have peaceful, one side, the other, non-peace, and then conclusion. Very patterned. It's a, I would almost call it like a haiku, but I, I guess it could just be, you know, good pacing, like I said. But I mentioned the pacing as well. I want to talk about Japanese storytelling here. I don't know... I don't know how to explain this. It's so deliberate. Now, I've seen plenty of films that have good pacing that don't have this type of pacing. Because what happens is there's nice, strong, clear movements of events as it goes through the film. And it's not slow because a lot happens in these beats. And even in the quieter moments, there's usually a lot to process, either significant character motivations or the, the emotions that are going on display, or maybe there's something that is nice and nuanced, like I already mentioned. Or, one of the things they pulled in this film a couple of times, is they'll have these kind of deliberate story beats happening as a battle or as something is happening, either in the past or the future, or in a couple times in the present, off over there. And so, while we're going through this beat, it like intersperses these shots. It's not slow, and it's not boring, it's just very deliberate in how it moves. It's brilliant stuff. It's, it's, I hate to use this phrase because it's become a meme, thanks to Lucas, but it's kind of like poetry. And I wanted to talk about that, too, because that leads into my next tidbit. Peace through power! No, really, though. Um, I love how simple... Ashitaka's motivations are here. On the one hand, he, he just wants people to stop killing each other. He hasn't really thought of a long-term solution. He just wants people to stop killing each other. And he likes uh, San because she's pretty. No judgment. They're, they're teenagers. I get it. I've been there. And, well, he's he doesn't want to kill uh, Iboshi because, again, not interested in revenge. And he recognizes that you know she is a good leader who is doing the best she can for her people. The reason I bring up the simplicity here is because this is exactly how San herself acts. All I have to do is kill Eboshi and everything's fine, right? I got a better example of that. There's this great scene where they bother to show her taking the reins off of Yakul and said, You're free now! Because, A, as if taking the reins off would really actually free such an animal, and B, the automatic presumption that Yakul was in fact a slave 
or a servant or whatever you want to call that. When, as we've shown earlier, and as, as confirmed over the next several scenes, Yakul is more like a partner, equal, balance. Now, <laughs> it also is a great way to showcase that even though she is not exactly good or bad, she is still stuck in that mindset of the versus mindset, which I'm, I, I really should be building up more, but I apologize. Then, <laughs> then we see, uh, well, I'll get to that in a second. So, question. Why are the boars getting worse? He mentions this. Now, it's mentioned uh, somewhat later by, by Eboshi, of all people, that as long as they keep taking out the forests, the, the animals will be easier to deal with. And so perhaps that's the literal perspective there. <sighs> Given who that's said by and the circumstances, I'm not sure I believe that. It could be argued that this is a simple Tolkien-esque thing. You know, you know the Tolkien thing. Wolves over time lose the ability to speak. Spiders over time. I know that's a gross simplification. But you get the idea. Thoughts, as always. Looking forward to yours. So then Eboshi has to fend off the remaining bandits. I mean, samurai. Sorry for being redundant. And this also helps to showcase how she, and more importantly, Irontown, are fighting against both sides. Now... Irontown has been shown pretty neutrally overall. Even though they're not exactly good people, they're certainly leaning more good than most of the other groups. This is how we bring the perspective back to the middle that I talked about earlier, because Irontown effectively becomes the middle, and their dealing with both sides is kind of the main thrust of the majority of the conflict that happens after this point. Jigo continues to be smart. I wrote this one out, so forgive me for just reading my notes in full. First, you take Asano and play him against Iboshi so that she is per pressured to dealing with him, uh, that is to say Jigo, in order to go and make sure that he, she retrieves this head. Thus, after retrieving it, she then has his promise of joint operations against Asano later. That, that's great. I, I, I got nothing else to add. That's just awesome. He's also so consistently amiable. And you know what's interesting? His motives are pretty simple, too. He just wants the money. I mean, the world is cursed and everyone wants everything, but I could actually get it. He just wants a ridiculous amount of money from the Emperor. I love the simplicity of it. I really do. Now, I don't have many thoughts about what is, at this point, the last, like, 40 minutes of the film. It's mostly conclusion, conclusion, conclusion. I love how friendly Toki and Kuroku are. Um, I find it interesting... How Ashitaka consistently doesn't want to kill, even when he has the motive and, well, let's put this bluntly, even when he's fighting designated targets. Real quick, on the off chance, you've never heard me talk about this before. Designated targets are a very common fictional trope. Stormtroopers, darkspawn, zombies, Nazis. Um, there's a lots of these. They vary from fiction to fiction. The whole point is you don't have to feel bad about killing them. They are bad guys. B, G, right? Um, capital B, capital G. It's a very common fictional trope, and it, it's not a bad one, by the way. It, is also, it has very good purpose in existing, and there's a lot you can do with it, especially if you use it to contrast other things, like the Darkspawn and Dragon Age Origins, like I just mentioned. I mention this, though, because Asano and his men are almost universally showcased to be acceptable targets, and they're not the only ones. And yet, again, Ashitaka deliberately goes out of his way to not kill them, and actually asks them to flee kills one, and then lets the other run away, even though that might not be the smartest move. Why is that significant? I want you to think about and contrast how, well, more modern superheroes, 
and by modern at this point, I mean like within the last 30 years, so I guess that's not that modern, would approach that. Do they really feel bad about taking out, you know, the, 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 the uh, Hydra agents? I couldn't think of that for sorry. I could want to say shield. <laughs> Spoilers. Um, do they really feel bad about taking out Hydra agents or zombies or like, or like the, the Chitari? Do they care? No, of course not. <laughs> because that's part of the shtick. It's just an interesting contrast since Ashitaka is in many ways superhuman despite the fact that he nearly dies. It's another thing I like about this film, is the fact that Ashitaka nearly dies, and his big plan was um, terrible, because he didn't have a plan. Remember, simplicity. He lucked out hard. And if not for that luck, he would have died, and that would have been game, wouldn't it? But I mention all of this, because it once again showcases how nobody here, with the possible exception of Eboshi and Jigo, are actually thinking long-term. Which makes sense. They are teenagers, after all. So the, this is when things start to get really bad, and we start to see how bad the monks are. And we find out that the peasant levies were used up at the front, because of course they were. And they swap sides, and then we start to get to some cool stuff. I'm going to rewind a second. Is that okay? Man versus nature is one of the more obvious themes of the film. It's something that's showcased a lot. But then we see the Amishi versus everyone who isn't Amishi. We can't talk to you. We can't even watch you go. You're banished, right? It's implied, but they have a very us versus them thing going on. This also is a thing that comes up in several towns where there's locals versus foreigners. We also see this in the men versus the women and the apes versus the wolves and the boars versus the wolves and Asano versus Eboshi. I bring all this up because while there is certainly a nature theme to this, I would say at best that's fourth or fifth down the line. I already mentioned what I think the second theme is, the cycle of revenge. But to me, the first, th- the first theme, the big central pillar of this film, by a huge margin, is lines. Line mentality, which is a specific form and variant of tribal, uh, tribal mentality, tribalism. This side of the line good, that side of the line bad. And line mentality can be argued to be responsible for an enormous amount of horrible things that have happened in human history, even as recently as today. I mention all of this because this versus mentality thing is something that the film wonderfully showcases how... The reason I mentioned that Iron Town is in the middle is because while they start out with line mentality, men versus women, us versus them... um, the uh, the frontliners versus the backliners and blah blah blah. Over the course of the film, they ki- all, all of those preconceptions kind of fall away. And to continue the metaphor, the line kind of stops being there, and instead there's just people. And this is an attitude that is no doubt provoked by the two main proponents of provoking this attitude: Ashitaka, who is already someone who has been in the middle, and San, who is someone who well, to put it bluntly, is in the middle and hates it. And that's how they two work together. Because, so we've got... this. I love the construction of this. I, I could probably do a, a diagram of this. Because we've got... We've got the Amishi, and they're in the middle, and they're at peace with it. And we've got Irontown, and they're in the middle, and they hate it. 
over time, Irontown comes more into balance with their, with being in the middle and not actually adhering to Lai mentality. Ashitaka is in the middle and is at peace with it. San is in the middle and hates it. You can tell how much it's bothering her, how much it is a consistent source of aggravation for her. At one point, her mother, didn't write down her name, actually casually mentions how ugly her daughter is. Now, obviously, she loves her daughter. Duh. She she effectively spends her last moments of life trying to save her from the gross, the demon curse on the on Keith David. But the reason I mention that, though, is I want you to picture growing up being completely different like that and knowing, either because they tell you outright or because you've overheard them, that your mother thinks you're ugly because you're human. You're in the middle. You hate it. And it's obviously a wound to her, and it affects her. And it's one of the reasons why she rejects Ashitaka so much, even though she clearly gels with him in a way, you know? After all, what she is seeing is a kindred spirit. She rants and rages and is angry at him, and then the moment he passes out and she no longer has to maintain that, that shield against him, she immediately is like, okay, I'll help you. Apes, stay away. No, you can't take him. It's okay, you're cool, come here. I need your help in this healing him. When he's back up, she's back to being antagonistic. But she's not actually antagonistic. She just can't sort that out and is probably projecting quite a bit here as well. After all, right? You can quote me on that. But the other person I find most interesting to be in the middle is actually Jigo. Think about it. Jigo isn't actually following of line mentality at all. He even comments at one point, whose side is he on? Like, it's almost a joke to him. He doesn't care. And that's the funny thing. This is how... So I've already shown how the two towns compare to each other. I've shown how the two main characters compare to each other. Let's talk about how the main character and the main villain compare to each other. Because Ashitaka is in the middle, is balanced, and, you know, is an anti-line mentality because he cares because of, of what it would call generally benevolent perspective. Jigo is in the middle and is balanced and doesn't believe in line mentality because it's not profitable. Because he is a pragmatist who thinks, well, yeah, no, I'd, I'd rather actually be wealthy and strong and powerful. And he manipulates and machinates his way around things. And so line mentality shouldn't matter to him. Why would it? That would just get in the way. <laughs> this is the third time I've praised Jigo as a villain, by the way. It's kind of messed up, considering how uh, a person he is. <laughs> what happens then, and the reason I wanted to pause here to talk about that, is up until very far into the film, it's always been individuals trying to push against this mentality. And no one else has really been with it. Not... Really, they've kind of been like, hmm. but they're not completely with it. And they shouldn't be. After all, they're only just being introduced to this concept. It is not until repeated reiteration of the concept that people start to adhere to it. And even the first step is done under duress, under extreme circumstances. The peasants, I know they're not peasants, but the, the peasant levy, effectively, the men from Irontown, the, who are working with the actual professional warriors, the monks, the peasants have just had to go on through this crap. A, a, a terrifying battle where they were used as cannon fodder. Literally, 
then we have the fact that the person they you know care about and respect has shown up and is asking for their help. Then they have the fact that those same warriors are trying to kill him just just because basically. And we have that reiteration thing I mentioned earlier, and and I, th- I probably missed a few beats there, but under all these circumstances, they go to help, and this is a brilliant scene again, because if Ashitaka freed the wolf, okay, but he doesn't. The people free the wolf. It had to be the group. It had to be an effort by more than just one person to show that the people are worth saving. The people are decent. The people are not your enemy. Not just one exception. So they help. And then they start rushing back in order to assist in defending the town from Asano and the evil evils. Uh, what? So they go. We see, we see a lot of gross. Oh my gosh. And Iboshi. <laughs> Do you have to take... The, okay, whatever. So... She really, really wants to be done with this debt marker. I'll tell you what. Shoots the head off the... Shoots the head directly. Doesn't do anything, of course. Shoots the head again. Works the second time. Not sure why. Takes the head, and then everything goes to hell. It's almost like things are all all of a sudden wildly out of balance. And you'll notice how this is probably the final uh, examination of line mentality. Eh... You could argue some more, but I, I would say this is the, the final boss of line mentality in this film. Because the giant spirit thing starts eating and destroying everything that is not itself. And that's pretty much the furthest extent of line mentality right there. Something that several villains across quite a bit of fiction have also venerated. Now, in this case, it's more of a violent reactionary thing, a forest fire equivalent, not an actual malevolence. But the point remains. Which leads me to my final question for this particular video. Why did it want its heads back? Why did it want its head back? Now, I'm not even going to speculate. There's a line that's mentioned. Human hands must return it. Uh, Ashitaka says that. But that doesn't really explain. It just implies. I'm not even going to give my theories, like I said. I want to hear yours. Unless it's been explained in some behind-the-scenes thing, in which case, never mind. So, dies. Everything goes back to normal. Yay. Jigo lives. That's surprising. Eboshi lives. That's surprising, too. Everyone says, all right, we're going to move forward. He's going to stay with the village and help. Balance. He's not going to lose her. He's going to go visit her regularly. Balance. Things cut out. And one of the weirdo things, starts with an M, shows N shows up. This was a fascinating film to discuss. I can see why it is so well-venerated and so popular. It's probably also worth noting that this film came out in a semi-unique form, uh, time in American history, when popular culture was exploding in a way that it kind of hadn't before, thanks to just the nature of technological progress, communication, and the ability to reach a much larger market than had ever been available before. We've actually had a few jumps forward like this uh, historically, you know, when radio first came, I, I could go back further than that, you know, when the horse came first came, became allowing you to share messages or when radio became a thing or when television became a thing but this uh, the the mid to late 90s was a big moment for stretching out communication wise with regards to fiction and culture i've actually talked about this when it comes to final fantasy 7 before as well and i think this film was helped by exactly that oh sure japanese animation in general had been getting popular here in the states ever since the 80s but this this was allowed to cast its net far and wide 
And so it did. And it sold bonkers, however much it actually sold for. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts here. I'll see you next time.